Well, a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Happy New Year to you all. I hope you had a refreshing break and are looking forward to the year ahead with renewed ambition and hope. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade, having spent my career working with the best performers and teams in pursuit of improving performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to dig into the principles, the complexities, the subtleties of performance so that we can better understand this thing that drives us to reach for more, for achievement and for the rich experience of climbing higher. And I'll be discussing these concepts with the people who have achieved, driven and explored aspects of performance in real depth. This week's guest will need little introduction to many of you. We're fortunate enough to have the legend that is Catherine Granger. Sorry, Dame Catherine Granger on the show. Catherine is five-time Olympic medalist and six-time world champion rower. But those statistics do not tell Catherine's story at all. In 2000, she was part of a crew that won Britain's first Olympic rowing medal, sneaking the silver medal, and four years later, in a pair with Kath Bishop, going into the Athens Olympics as world champions, they were beaten to the gold, and again Catherine and Kath took silver. Four years later, at the Beijing Games, having won three successive world titles each and every year in the lead-up to the Games, in the quadruple scales, Catherine's crew had victory snatched away from them by a rampant Chinese crew on home waters. Third attempt then, third silver. Next was London, a home games and on home waters, with a desperate expectation to take gold, multiplied by the fervent expectation of the home nation. Along with Anna Watkins, Catherine took her moment in clinching gold. That wasn't it actually, as she eventually went on to the Rio Olympics in 2016 to take Yes, you've guessed it, another silver. I had the privilege of working with Catherine in the first half of her career, and just as she was as an athlete in this interview, she was humble, perceptive, honest, thoughtful, but also driven and very resilient. It was wonderful to reflect back over Catherine's career with her. She was so engaging. Actually, it was, it was a little emotional at times, reflecting together. But I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it with her. I start off by asking her about what I thought was quite a strange moment just in the minutes before the Sydney Olympic final. Catherine, how are you? You are right? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to see you again, Steve. So, I want to ask you first and foremost about just before the Olympic final in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, uh, so I was walking towards the, uh, the main stand, the Olympic family stand, and uh, I'm t- wanting to take my seat. I was a bit late from the train, and I was walking past the, the fence for the boathouse, and do you remember calling me over and s- shouting, Steve, Steve, and, and we had a chat by the fence about I don't know, it must have been about 20 minutes before the Olympic final. Do you remember that? I remember seeing you before, but I don't remember what we talked about, if I'm honest. But I remember, it was nice to see a familiar face. <laughs> I, I was proper, I was, I was surprised. <laughs> I'm thinking, what are you Shouldn't doing? Should be focused? Yes, it was exactly that. I was thinking, that's really unusual to kind of be reaching out and connecting. And obviously we'd worked together for a few years, but um, that, was, that was unusual. Do you remember what was going through your head? before your first Olympic final? 
Uh, yeah, I, I think so. It was four of us in a boat, and everyone was in a different place, both physically, but also kind of emotionally and mentally. And we'd we'd had our meeting together. Then there was that bit of time that you all kind of do everything else you need to do before you get together for the actual warm up and the race to begin. And I think I was just, I don't know, I didn't think I, I didn't know what I should be doing. You know, I hadn't done this before, right. so I wasn't really sure. It's the bit you never talk about, that sort of little bit of free time. But I think as my uh, Olympic Games progressed, I probably, I probably chatted less, maybe around the finals, I don't remember. Yeah. But at that time it was, it was nice. It hopefully meant I was in a good relaxed place, rather than distracted, looking for other focuses. I suppose that I suppose there's two options of go in inward or outward and connect with people and get energy from elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I think all athletes are the same. Everyone's got a very different way of doing it. The most important thing is it's what's right for you. So yeah. some people are very sociable and you know almost use that as it like you said as an energy and as a positive thing. And some people do not want to speak to anyone. And you know solitary, thinking about their own mindset, listening to music, whatever it is. And it's and whatever works for you is the right way to do it. There's no right or wrong. Mm. I'm so, seeing myself quickly. Hopefully it wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it it seemed to turn out the result. Um, it certainly seems to be one of those um, things that is observable of, of, of making sure that you're preparing in the right way, but it's highly individualised. Mm. But how unusual it is to get a text from somebody who's just about to perform or they're they're just about to go out on the, on the bench, whatever it might be, and they're connecting with, with you. And you think, aren't you? Shouldn't you be thinking <laughs> about you? something else? <laughs> You, you're allowed to be doing that. <laughs> I know, and I think I think that's the thing. It's it's all of us are so different in what we need and what we want and what's good for us at that point. And the, the best thing is not to feel there is a a way to do it or not, because if that's not your natural way, then it, then it becomes very uncomfortable. If I, you know, if someone had said to me, I need to be alone in a quiet spot, not speaking to anyone, then yeah. I'd have struggled with that in a way. Yeah. Wow, I want to talk to you a little bit about the up and ups and downs, but also the the overall lessons that you've got from, from your career. The Sydney Games was was an interesting one from the point of view that you, in the, in the lead up to that, you were in quite an unremitting training programme at the time. Um, but, but that was your first sort of transition into to senior sport and senior training. Did you know what you were experiencing at the time? Did you, were you mindful enough to be critical, to be understanding, to be discerning? Um, whilst it was sort of young and looking looking upward, yeah, no, probably not. Probably because uh, in a way, you, when you're doing things for the first time and it's not a world you know or mm. you know of or you know, my family had done anything like that, then you don't you don't have anything to compare it to. You don't really mm. know how to analyse it or how to to read it, and that's it's more with reflection in the sort of time afterwards. You know, then you could see more what was happening. Um, I remember being phenomenally aware how lucky we were. You know, yes, it was incredibly tough and it was incredibly, you know, very physically punishing, but also mentally and emotionally really, really tough sort of times those years leading up to that first games. But at the same time, it was the first time we had lottery funding. It was the first time we had a there was a, a sort of coach employed to look mm. after the women's team. It was the first time we began to have sort of support from the science and medicine world. And I think knowing the athletes, so you know, I was very new in the team. Most of the other athletes had been around a lot longer, so. I could understand through their reading of where we were now, you know, what amazing steps our sport was taking. And they were, you know, they were really, like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't just because you got that amazing support and opportunity certainly doesn't make it easy. And it was, there was a lot of sort of growing pains through that time of until we got to kind of what we knew would work as a, as a sport. But 
I I remember just I I felt very lucky. I felt really you know, it, it is that slight sense of living the dream. I mean, I was I was going out to try and go to my first Olympic Games and achieve a first Olympic medal and you know, I was I was someone who picked up my sport at university and, and never ever had planned or expected it to go to that level. Mm. So I was really I loved the environment also being one of the youngest ones in the team and learning constantly from everyone around me and trying to soak up experience and wisdom because I didn't have it myself at that point. So I remember being really kind of wide-eyed and and like a sponge just willing to to take anything I could from anyone around me. Mm. And I think I probably got I just I was more discerning as my career development developed and I developed. Right. So you were always almost at that frayed edge of fatigue mm. and pushing yourself on a daily basis that was that was what you were experiencing at the time yeah it was it was a really really hard training program and uh not really one you you can you know adjust into you sort of you know when you when you came to the team that was the standard you did it to it wasn't you didn't get eased into that level you kind of came mm. in and you you hit you hit it at the top end if if you were you know if you were seen as an athlete ready to be part of that olympic team then therefore you were going to do the olympic training and there was no gradual adjustment into it so it was tough from the start and also you tie in not just how kind of unrelentingly physical and how physically demanding it was but also when you're pushed to that level of constant exhaustion there's also a pressure of the standard you're trying to perform and also the you know the the competition for places and the the constantly feeling you are being not necessarily judged, but but you know decisions and selections we made depending on all these performances. So you felt everything mattered and every session was important. And you know a lot of the time, you know you you were absolutely on your knees in some way, whether actually physically or emotionally. But you couldn't, you know, you didn't want to show weakness. You didn't mm. want to show that you were you weren't coping and you kept pushing on and on. So, I mean, it was it was a tough sort of start to to my career. I remember the singing at the Gold Coast with Gillian, Miriam, and um, and Gwyn. And you just described all the training that you'd been doing, barely having time off for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd, I think Mike had forgotten lunch one day or something, and 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 you described this to me. And I, and I think I asked the question of you, how do you feel? And you looked around and thought, actually, we look, we feel okay. I was like, right. I think I think that was about as measured as I was right. And then suddenly I had this kind of hope of thinking that your taper could go amazingly well. If you, if you feel okay and you haven't broken, then this could go really well. And then the performances started to, to come, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And I think I, I think it's hard when you're in the absolute sort of darkest days of that massive training load. It's almost hard to, it's very rare that someone says, how are you doing? So it's sort of hard to actually think, how are we doing? Are we doing okay in this? Because you mm. just got used to it being, you know, you just, you just never felt great. You always felt it was that, edge of of breaking your exhaustion but actually when you realize that was that became normal that became okay so actually you felt okay on it and you're right so it meant when then finally the release of that intensity and that training load lifted then you did feel you felt absolutely brilliant and you felt suddenly ready to perform the racing intensity that you needed when it came to the olympic games Mm -hmm. so as you started to get to the close to the to the final and the medal looked like more and more of a prospect and then you snuck the silver um which was, I guess, an upgrade, wasn't it? You know, thinking of getting a medal and you snuck the silver um, and how that, that felt. But also, I'm curious to know how, how quickly or what your thoughts were then of thinking of either replicating or, or going, going even 
um, further and, and the top of the podium? Yeah, I think what what the big thing for us, so the Sydney Olympics in 2000 was the first time that any of the British women's rowing team would be on the podium. So mm. the real ambition for all of us, all the different boat classes, was to try and get on the podium. It had never been done before. Any medal of any colour would have been a huge breakthrough and a huge success. So the ambition was very much kind of a medal. It wasn't It wasn't sort of more defined than that. And, and we would have honestly, every single one of us would have been ecstatic with any colour of medal. And certainly in our event at the time the gold medal was kind of felt very much sewn up the Germans were mm. outstanding champions had won every Olympic Games in that event were clear favourites and and to be honest the Russians were very very clear favourites for the silver medal so it felt like the, op- the, the one that was possible and maybe within reach was the bronze it was the one that no one's name was sort of stamped on it in mm. the same way but you know we were racing to get on that podium so when we we won and I was convinced we had won the bronze when we crossed the line and I was over the moon with that, absolutely delighted, couldn't have been happier, until they said there's a photo finish and uh, it, hmm. it might be silver. And then suddenly, because someone's dangled that right in front of you, you think, well, actually, the silver might be nice. You know, yeah. the bronze <laughs> was great five minutes ago, but now <laughs> bring me the silver. And it was a real, you know, there's a really amazing sort of human reaction to expectations. So, mm. you know, we were expe- we were hoping, it wasn't an expectation, we were hoping to get on the podium. But then your expectation moves once you've when you know you're on the podium. Then actually, I'd like to see how high I can go. So then the, you know, on that day we got obviously we actually won the silver in the photo finish, which was incredible. But as soon as almost that was then in the bag, it was brilliant. We knew how to do it, and we felt we you know we wanted to do it again. And everyone in the team felt actually they wanted to do it. They had trained alongside us in the in the wider sort of team. They they knew us as individual athletes and as a collective in that crew. And they although they respected what we'd achieved, they didn't think it was. They didn't think we were anything so special that it, yeah. they couldn't do it themselves. So actually, what it, what it created was this amazing belief that actually, yeah, British women can get on the podium in this sport, and why why shouldn't we be doing it again? So sort of four years on, the expectations had completely shifted to not just I wonder if one boat or some of us can get on the podium to everyone set out to get on the podium mm. and in Athens four years later everyone did the whole <laughs> women's rowing team made it yeah, onto the Olympic it was, podium so it was it, made, it did transform the sport yeah that that's um that sort of vicarious experience of yeah, the, the men benefited from having Steve around mm. um and as a role model that you can do it as the the, the wider male and female team did but but equally to be able to show well, you're close to me. I can, I could do that too, or I could, I could at least try to bridge that gap, as opposed to thinking it's out of my reach. Yeah, there's, there's definitely being, being so close to, to athletes that are performing at that level and succeeding at that level, and seeing that you know, I when I came on the team, I was very lucky that, so the end of my career overlapped with, well, the start of my career overlapped with Steve's, the end of Steve Redgrave's career. And Matthew Pinson was still around the time, and James Cracknell and Tim Foster in the boat in Sydney, and seeing up and close, kind of that work ethic and that that commitment and what it took for mm. those those medals to come for the men's team. It didn't make you think instantly, well, we could do it, but you saw that's what it's going to take. Yeah, it's okay. going to take that level of of work and commitment for us to do the same. But then I think once we made the breakthrough in Sydney for the women's side, then everyone felt, okay, well then 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 it, you can do it. And there is definitely something about being that proximity to to success that makes it not necessarily realistic, but but possible. Mm. And once you believe it's possible, then then real things start happening. But that belief has to be authentic in the sense yeah. that it has, it has to be close enough or I can at least see a path. Yeah. Even if that path means 
industry, which means it's going to really hurt and it's going to be mentally tough, mm. at which point you can make a decision, is this for me or not? Yeah. And I think going into Sydney, it was probably more of a hope. It wasn't, it wasn't a belief that we could get on the podium, but there's a real hope we could do it. If everything went right and if we did our jobs as we should and could and we you know, got the tactics right and everything else, the hope was we could maybe make the podium. I think the change once it was done, once, was then a belief. It switched to a real... And there's a difference. And I think that belief is really that inner confidence that, yeah, this is this is doable, this is possible now. It's not just a distant hope. It's a mm. real belief that we can transform this. And I think we've never looked back from that point. I generally think every new sort of... There's, there's obviously new athletes come in all the time and every new generation believes that those medals can come and will come because the, the the system the setup is repeatable and the role models sort of carry over that incredible belief and and that really very realistic ambition of success uh, I was uh, in conversation with Martin McElroy who you remember yes. um, from the, the Sydney Games uh, men's eight uh, I was in conversation with him after 2016 he was coaching the, the Canadian crew and he said, you do not realise just how much belief the British team has. And it is so intimidating. And he said, it's across the sports. And, and I, I, remember, I remember going to the, my first World Championships in 98. And Steve and Matt coaxed Tim and James out of, the, out of their little slumber and strutted around the boatyard and, and demonstrated. We, we, we're the, we're the, you know, the main men here. Um, yeah. And, and how it can affect the opposition. But also, I guess, internally, just thinking, yeah, we're, we're the ones to beat. And how, how important that is as you're going towards that, that relatively threatening Yeah, and I judgment. think that's, it's, it's a great example of how much, so much training goes into the physical side of sport, but it becomes such a mental game when it's mm. at the real performance end. And it really is not just your own belief in yourself or your team or your crew or anything else, but also the belief the other, your opposition will have. You know, if they are, you know, Steve Redgrave and his crews were an amazing example of how almost you could beat, in, you could beat the opposition before you even get on the start yeah. line. Because for a lot of the time, the opposition didn't believe that they could beat Steve Redgrave. Mm. And that you're already one step ahead at that point. And even if you have your own self-doubts at times, which will happen, having the opposition on edge is a brilliant place to be able to do if you can do that to your opposition. Mm. So the one word you mentioned there about expectations, whether that's expect, expecting a bronze and then thinking, actually, the silver's on offer. I now expect that and hope for that. Um, that, that must be in contrast to the, the 2004 and 2008 finals where you're going in as world champion and how that must have changed your expectation as to what the, the outcome must be. And I, and I suppose you're, you're never going to downgrade you don't want to go in as the underdog you want to be the the best in the world going into the, the competition but how was that how was that very that different in terms of your uh, expectation going into the 2004 and 2008 games yeah i mean all the games i went at felt sort of very different inevitably because they're four years apart you're a different athlete you're you know different person in those four years but in athens in 2004 the expectation was different because we had you know a Kath and I were in a pair. We'd won the World Championships the first time for both of us the year before. Now, it was only... There was a very, very strong Romanian crew that were defending champions, both world and Olympic champions, and the world best time. They had everything. And so very, very few people, if anyone, had ever beaten them. And we beat them at the World Championships before the Olympic Games. So it suddenly created this 
mm. possibility that this crew is beatable. Um, but at the same time, it was, you know, we'd only beat them once. And, right. and we didn't sort of beat them again in the run-up to the Olympics and didn't beat them at the Olympics, obviously. We, lo- we came second to them. So although there was still... It was a more disappointing silver, for sure, because yeah. of than Sydney that had been, you know, the sort of step up. It was sort of that, oh, it could have been, and we didn't quite get it right. Um, but that that whole, you know, we had, we had really massive challenges leading up to the, those Olympic Games and those finals. So actually, although... There was a t- you know, there was a sense of oh, it wasn't the gold, but it was still an amazing performance and an amazing result. The Beijing was the bigger shift for me because it was, mm. it's another four years on. You know, it's a four years of the old blood, sweat, and tears leading up to that final, and you think I must be better now. I must have improved. I must have moved on. It was a different crew. I was back in a quad. Those four of us, and we and we spent four years leading up to Beijing where we win the world championships every time we won three world titles mm. coming into Beijing we we were really not just not just winning occasionally as I'd done in the lead up to Sydney or to Athens but this was now consistent winning this is when you you really feel you've you've sort of cracked that that pathway you know what it's going to take to win you know how to win in a race you know how to react and respond and read a race and, and deliver the result when it matters so the last, the last sort of step of that four-year journey is the Olympic Games, the Olympic final. And mm-hmm. we'd, we won the heat on the way through and we set our uh, record at the time. And we did all these amazing steps. And we were fit and healthy and, you know, you can't always guarantee that going into any race. So we had everything in, our, in the sort of palms of our hand to deliver the ultimate result in Beijing, or so we thought. And for 90% of that race, we led the race. You know, we, we were sitting there in the position exactly we'd planned for and wanted to be the whole way through that four-year period. Then the the dying stages, the last couple of hundred meters of of Beijing, we were beaten by the Chinese crew in their you know their home games in front of their home crowd, and mm. they were absolutely ecstatic to take that title, and we were utterly destroyed because mm. we'd spent four years only talking about one result, only training for one result, only expecting, not expecting, never expect it, but only accepting that would be success for us. So whereas. The silver in Sydney was a huge success. wasn't even there's no but to it. Just a huge success. Athens was a massive success against a lot of the odds. A little sense of maybe, mm-hmm. but realistically, that was probably the best we could have done in Athens. Beijing felt like a failure. Beijing felt like you know might as well have come last. It just that silver medal meant it was awful. It just felt it didn't even felt nothing. It was worse in a way that that physical medal was a sort of tangible reminder of failure and that was really hard to come to terms with really really difficult and that's why it's so emotional that's why you see you know athletes apologizing to your nation you know we were generally felt we'd mm. let people down we thought we felt you know our coach our teammates the whole of team gb all these people that you want to deliver for friends family people who'd spent huge amounts of money supporting us in beijing now none of them ever once sort of said oh you've, you've disappointed us but as an athlete delivering that result you feel you've disappointed everyone and that's very hard to live with so how, how aware were you of the chinese crew in the lead up oh uh, we were as, very as a aware threat. yeah we were aware yeah. in the olympic year so so in rowing you qualified the year before so in 2005 2006 they weren't really around 2007 was the first year we began to see not just in rowing but across different sports yeah. the Chinese crews and Chinese teams sort of come across because they'd stated um, as a nation very publicly they wanted to top the middle table in 2008 they'd never 
they'd never beaten USA, never come to the top of the Olympic medal table, and that was their absolute focus and goal, stated mm. goal for 2008. So you sort of saw from the qualification year onwards, from 2007 onwards, a sort of different scale of, of Chinese athletes and competitors, and they really were impressive. So in the 2008 year, we obviously raced through this yeah. that summer before we get to the Games, and we did race the crew. We, we beat them, sometimes they beat us. We okay. probably were equal favourites going into the the um, actual Olympic Games, and we were on separate sides of the draw. Now, we, our time in our Olympic heat broke the Olympic record, um, and China beat, broke it by more. So we knew okay. there was only two boats going to come in this final and be down to that those two boats. Mm. They changed one of their crew. So this sprint finish they put in the, the end, we'd never seen them. That's one move we'd never seen them deliver. And they did have this one change of personnel. And we don't know, you know, this this girl must have brought something that you know we we hadn't expected. So when it came to sprint finish, we just we just couldn't match it. They right at the end, and mm. we we tried we tried everything to hold on to that. And um, and then you know you cross the line, and that's that's written in history. That's your that's next to your name forevermore. And it was really hard to to be okay with that. Do, do you remember the actual feelings during the race? Do you because uh, as you as you're starting to to race and you're starting to look at the, the uh, opposition and obviously in rowing you can see them if you're behind them if they're behind you um, did you get a sense of how how's this going to play out we're doing well we still need to be vigilant or managing the threats and then seeing them come and and not yeah, being yeah. able to respond I mean, as well rowing's one of the strange sports in that you obviously go backwards so if you can get a fast start and our crew did have a fast start you can watch the the opposition behind you you, you you're not, you're not sitting watching because you're actually you know, flat out going as fast as you possibly can. But you are aware of, of how the race is unfolding. And I know the night before we did a really great sort of final row together and I remember we came in and we just all felt we're ready. We're ready for this. You still can't predict what will unfold, but we're, we were ready as we could be for that race. Uh, we're all in a great place mentally and physically. And the start of that race, I remember the first half thinking this is, what we, this is, this is how we wanted to unfold. We, we, got, we got the start we wanted. We felt we were in a good rhythm, we felt we were getting the distance we needed. From everything, from the whole four years of learning up to that point, what was un- sort of unfolding was was as we would have hoped in that Olympic final. So it was only, I remember, it was only towards the end when, when, like I said, they just, this change of gear from from the Chinese crew was just so unexpected. And, and you, I mean, we saw it instantly, you, you felt it and you saw it very quickly, this sudden change of pace they had. Um, so of course you react and we spent four years trying to get this right and we you know, we went through everything all of us to you know to try and match their speed and and up our own gears and we went through everything and a bit of tension crept in inevitably because suddenly you're under the biggest threat mm. of that four-year cycle um and ultimately we just couldn't they they beat us by just under a second i mean it was very very close but mm. we just didn't have enough at the end so you yes you're conscious of exactly what's happening and there's nothing nothing more you can do mm. and it's a stark fact of sport isn't it that most people lose and yeah. <laughs> um and despite the fact that you can hope and uh, not, uh, i think any any brit that tuned in or can what, remember those iconic pictures of you uh just fully disappointed mm. there's no sense of let's mm. look happy for the podium of just this is how I feel this is this was awful for the four of you um, how, how did you get out of that lull because I, I would imagine that would have run on for a while after yeah after it the did final. I mean it, uh, I think it's, it's sort of hard to explain away from people who, who won't know that world but you 
you lose perspective and it and it's sort of it's right that you do you know when you get to the olympic games level it will feel everything it, it will you know in a, it's a healthy obsession it really is it, you're in your absolute dream and you're living it and breathing it and talking about it all the time and it is absolutely everything you focus on and so when it goes wrong or when it when it's disappointment then it's on a huge scale it's absolutely vast and and you know everyone around you everyone is incredibly supportive and and loving and caring but no one has the right words and no one there are no right words that's the problem there's nothing that will fix it or change it or or move it forward and it's and it's it's such an obvious thing but you know in in honesty time is the best healer it's the only healer really i mean i had the most wonderful family wonderful friends who were there every step of those sort of the, the days and weeks and months after the beijing final and everyone you know i i couldn't have been more helped but it still took a long time to work through it because you know it's like it's almost a grieving process it really mm. it feels that it, it it hurts you that deeply and you you well certainly at that point we thought we'd never get that chance again that's it that's 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 it over really that's the, the olympic dream done and and it was so close and yet and that didn't work out and that's it's just it is a process it's one day at a time it's getting up day after day and still getting on with things and you know, living life and and accepting that in time, then you do move forward. But it mm. was, it there was no quick fix. There was no thing that would suddenly make it okay or mm. distract. And of course, we all we all functioned and we all, you know, moved on different things in life. But it just took a while for all of us to kind of accept that 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 was that it was over. If you so knowing knowing what you know now, um, and you if you could go back in time. To increase the probability of the reversing that result, is there anything that you could have drawn out from your reflections that you could have thought, actually that would have really helped? Uh, uh, it's hard. I, to be honest, I haven't watched the race very often, so I wouldn't. Necessarily do whether it's the, the race or the process and the leader, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that sort of sticks with, with me, and I don't know how you change it, would be um, under the, in that intensity of battle, what would have helped us slightly if we could have still relaxed. And it's such a simple thing. But, you know, you are fighting for your lives, it feels like, and the tension is rising because you're right. running out of space and time. And I think the really, the really, really exceptional athletes, even in that level, can still relax. I think you see it, okay. you know, in sprinting, you see it in, in different sports where there's actually still that relaxation in the middle of it. If you can sort of find a way to still tap into that, that little bit of breathing space when you feel it is, you know, eyeballs bulging and running out of oxygen and everything's happening at once and you know you can't feel your legs or arms or anything anymore and your mm. m brain is screaming at you and all that if in if in the middle of that you can find a beat of of calm or relaxation that could have helped us oh that's a that's a great lesson Did, were you able to relax during the london final oh i flipping love that one <laughs> jeez the whole 2000 meters i was having a ball <laughs> yeah. uh yeah i mean it's hard to go oh i was so relaxed through the whole thing but What's interesting about the, the London final, I mean, that had, of all my games um, and all my races, the biggest interest, the biggest expectation, the biggest build-up, the biggest... I mean, it was... By then, it was the journey, wasn't it? It's like she's tried three times and lost three times. Can she, yeah. can she deliver finally? I was in this amazing partnership with Anna Watkins. We just we just worked as a, as a, as a double. And I remember um, us talking with, with Anna, myself, and our coach, Paul afterwards and people were saying sort of when did you know in that race that you were going to win and I was kind of like 
kind of just past the finish line, you know, and I sort of finally <laughs> accepted that this was going to be okay. When we got the gold medal yeah, around our neck, just to be sure. sure. <laughs> I just like to be sure this time. And I was sort of saying about halfway, uh, she's got a very mathematical brain. She reads things very, very well. Right. So she knew from a very quick calculation of the gap over our opposition, how they were looking, the kind of speed and rhythm okay. and ratio they were in, how we felt, how much energy we'd used. She almost could do that in a heartbeat, that calculation, and say, yep, we've got enough. Right, we're you fine. haven't got enough. We've got more in the yep. tank, that type of And we've got more gears we can go if we need to. Right. With, the, with the length of you know distance we have to the finish line, we've, we're, we'll be okay. Mm. Um, but she didn't equate it to winning the Olympic Games. She could just say, at that point in that race, we'll win this race. Yes, and okay. it almost took her a moment to accept, oh my, that means we've won the Olympic Games. So that was kind of a lovely, she could take that emotion out. Did she, did she communicate that to you during the <laughs> Not race? during the race, afterwards. She said there was a beat. If you watch it, I react instantly, because I wouldn't believe it until we crossed the line. As soon as we crossed the line, I let myself believe it. She knew approaching the line but almost was a hesitation because it wasn't until she saw my reaction that she suddenly clicked that we've won the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. So that was a slight delay, very, very brief, but a little bit delay. Our coach, Paul, was interesting because he said, I knew within about five strokes. And I thought, there's no way he's that confident. There's no way he's that sure. But what, and it's a really interesting point when you were talking about how you can, you know, relax and get those finals enjoyable and right was this is the biggest final of your lives, biggest final you will ever be in, a home Olympic Games with this much home interest and pressure. He said the biggest threat to both of us in the boat actually wasn't the opposition, but was ourselves. Because if we couldn't deal with that moment or it changed how we raced, then we were at risk. So he said within five strokes, you were in the rhythm I recognised, you had the run in the boat that I needed to see, you were, the timing was right, and I thought you'll be okay, because you know how to do this race now. Mm. So in a way that, you know, even that massive heat of expectation and battle, by, by performing exactly as we always had done and always could do, then he was reassured that we'd be able to get this one right. So Anna is assessing logically in a very contained and measured, mm -hmm. calculated way. Paul Thompson is, is there sussing it out from this is normal, they've, they've found their rhythm. And, and how were you in that moment with that expectation that we've talked about, um, but added and multiplied up by the, the home expectation? Because it's weird, really, in some ways, is that it's still the Olympics. It's just not in exotic countries. Mm. It's it's at home. And mm. um, what the, the comes with the media and the, yeah. it's more family in the in the stands it's and so, so on. It's so different. It's so I cannot say enough how different a home games was. Just I just feel immensely privileged and immensely lucky that it fell into my career because mm. you know Steve Redgrave we talked about had five Olympic games, won all five, never got home Olympic games opportunity. Mm. So it needs to fall in your career, and it's very unusual for it to happen. When the, when I was that was that was me at my peak as well. I was in a great partnership and and it all came together the timing. Um, but it is still the it wasn't just the crowds and and f feeling I knew about ninety percent of those individuals in the crowds. <laughs> it was it was also the passion behind the crowds. So the noise is immense at every single Olympic Games. The the crowd will always be loud and and joyous and you know positive and this immense swell of of chaos and emotion and noise. But in the London crowds, there was such a passion. You, there was real tangible passion that came out. And in the London, at the at Dorney Lake, where the rowing was, they'd built really quite big metal stands. So it wasn't just mm. the cheering, stamping of feet. The whole thing was being magnified, this noise. So we were in an absolute cauldron by the, by the finish. It was deafening. I could not hear a word Anna was trying to say to me and all that. And for me, 
you know, I was, I'm, I am, I was a very emotional racer. And I knew what that race meant to me. I knew what it meant to Anna and myself and Paul and all of our family and all of our friends. And to be honest, every athlete I've ever raced with all in some way got in touch before that. They understood as well and they were part of that journey. And it, it made it so magical. But it also brought in more and more pressure because you thought, oh, this really matters now. And the only way I could deal with that was, was to stay more in the moment than I have ever done in my life in that I just, I could not think beyond the stroke I was on. Okay. I could not think about the crowd. I could not think about the people. I couldn't think what it meant. I couldn't think about the media. I couldn't think about the headlines. I couldn't think about what if. I couldn't think about, you know, when this finish line comes. I couldn't, I could not, I genuinely was worried if I opened the lid on any of that, if I'd be able to cope. Because it was so emotional. It was such a, I mean, it was really quite overwhelming. So I kept this lid really tight on during that race. I really stayed in, you know, very practical, one stroke at a time. How can I make the next stroke better? Listen to the calls that Anna were giving me, you know, just delivering that race. And it was as soon as the finish line came, you know, as the finish line was coming, I was getting close okay. to that, that lid can start to lift. And then it just ripped off when we crossed that finish line. And, it, in the, and that's why it was such an amazing emotion moment, noise, the crowd. Instantly, you just think, we've done it. We've finally done it. It, it was, um, and my memories of the, of the home Olympics was that it wasn't, it wasn't just, okay, we're on our home turf and there's a lot more Union Jacks. Um, it was, God, okay, there's, there's an upgrade in the noise, yeah. big time. And, the, and so, for example, um, I remember the, 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 first, the first event of the heptathlon for Jess normally you go to those and there's no no one there there's some athletes some coaches a couple of pigeons not much kicking about but the, the place was full um the rowing lake was just it was almost down to the the yeah. start wasn't yeah, it yeah they filled the stadiums and they they let people walk up the length of the course so you yeah. had people shouting from the first hundred meters which you don't get you never get that you really <laughs> it's a you long get one man and the dog if you're lucky with a dog <laughs> so it you know it the whole Olympic Games from the opening ceremony onwards felt different and felt and I think what was lucky about what was really lovely being in our, our home piece of water as well yes. I remember Anna and I the first time we sort of arrived it was going to feel different it was going to it was always that sense of um, this is our lake and, and we went away for the months before because they sort of close it to Olympify it and we, we went back through the gates for the first time seeing it in the week before the games and it was this wonderful mix of it's still our lake it's still Dorney Lake it's still we've done so many training sessions here but the Olympic rings had been put on the bridge and mm. the Olympic mascots were out and you know the world had come all the sort of racks we put up and all the boats had arrived from all the different countries and there was this incredible pride in that this is you know it's our little local lake suddenly being the host of the Olympic Games and we felt a massive pride in what it looked like and what it meant, but also a huge uh, kind of, not an anger at all, but a sort of right. If people are going to come here, they better be good to try and beat us here because okay. this is ours. We had ownership. It yeah. felt like this is our home turf now. And, you know, yeah, and Australians were our biggest opposition and they'd been, you know, really vocal in a, in a, in a very good Australian way of, you know, we're coming here to win. We're going to ruin the, the party for the <laughs> Brits and all that. And we were a bit like, if it, we kind of had that kind of edge to it, like, all right, then bring it, 
bring it on. In an awkwardly British, humble way of, jolly good, all the best. Yeah, we threw that out the window. <laughs> that, 2012, that was gone. It was kind of like, brilliant, let's really showcase this. And I remember it being, I remember being really excited. I really looked forward to it. I was really, you know, some things you're kind of thinking, oh, I'm not ready yet, I'm not sure. I remember 2012 being like, let's let this party get started because yeah. we're, we're ready. Okay, but at the same time, you're having to contain those emotions. That's so that it was an enormous pulse then in terms yeah. of feeling the moment, yeah. feeling how special this yeah. is, how you could potentially utilise it for your own good, managing the emotions during the race, yeah. but then it all coming out at the end. Because the risk is if you... <sighs> If you give in to that emotion all the time, it's it's really quite exhausting. Yeah. Honestly, it sounds ridiculous, but we're a very you know physical, tough sport. But actually, the emotions can mm. be the bit that tips you over the edge. So, mm. you know, you couldn't. And and it's another thing. You're part of this amazing British team. You really feel part of every single member of Team GB matters to you. So that also other people in the team were competing and having good days or really bad days. And and it's and it's being aware of that but not being pulled into that all the time. So that every day you didn't get pulled through huge highs and huge mm. lows. You had to try and you know m- keep the momentum but keep it balanced and keep the energy because mm. what you don't want to do is get to the Olympic final morning and you're you're absolutely shattered before it begins no, sure. okay. because it can it can be so draining that that level of energy and you're doing less training which is yeah. itself is not uh, you yeah. you do, you've got more free time yeah. you've got more time to think you almost feel uncomfortable because you have this energy and you're not filling your time because we usually you know hours and hours every day in meetings or in training sessions or in the gym or all of that sort of slows almost to a standstill mm. so you've got thinking time and you've yeah. got you know you almost you cannot let that take over either okay a couple of last questions then Catherine who made the journey easier <laughs> and how oh gosh it's going to sound so cheesy now um almost pretty much everyone in all honesty made made the journey easier i i mean i'm aware now i'm it's probably all a bit rose tinted so you know i look yeah, back okay. i do look back and being an athlete is as just an incredible time for me what it taught me what i learned how i changed how i developed and everyone every single person in the journey played a part now now some you know some played it for a completely positive role in that and some maybe less so but in a way that challenge that they brought and that that test that they brought to me has made me better. I really believe that, and I think I love I, I from the day one when I got into a boat at university. I love the the team side of it. I love the other people. I love being part of a, a team, and that's the wider team as well. It's not just my you know, teammates in the boat, but you are trying to create something together that you can't do on your own. You're trying to achieve something that you couldn't do on your own you're trying to make a little bit of history that you couldn't do on your own and I love that it takes this jigsaw and Anna and I in mm. 2012 always talked about the jigsaw what bits were missing what do we need to improve and how we'd basically finish you know you want to get to the end point with that jigsaw every piece in place and it kind of laminated and indestructible <laughs> so it was just like one perfect picture by the end and it and it, it probably took me a lot of, you know a lot of years to get there to understand all those bits fitting together but I loved it every single member of staff every single coach every single athlete every single spare every single person at some point has a little impact on you some have a huge impact absolutely mm-hmm. and that's so that's what you remember when you leave it's the team that you you miss and you you struggle without but I also there's no way I could have done it without my family who were from day one you know, my mum, my dad and my big sister, we'd never had anything like this in our family. It was, you know, I said, I'm going to go and try this rowing thing. You know, they were just, well, all right then. Mm. Why not? 
you know, it's that carpe diem. Feeling supported and back. Absolutely. I felt, I always talk about, I felt I had this safety net that I could fly as high as I could. And if it went wrong and if I fell, then I'd be okay because my family were literally the safety net mm. below me and they believed in me, but they also knew that if it didn't work out, then they, I would, they would still love me as much. And it was that incredible belief in me, but no expectation put on me by them. Mm. So I feel I've been really, it is... Yeah, I do feel everyone's been part of that journey. And so if you were going to go back to that 25-year-old, 23-year-old, say, just before you were going to, into your first mm. Olympics, um, knowing what you know now and, and the perspective and the wisdom that you've accrued over time, and what would you, what would you tell yourself if you had a chance to go back and, and, um, and give a little bit of advice? Oh, that's a good question. Um... I suppose it's the thing you always go back and sort of think you'd say to yourself younger just to to believe in yourself and um, that the journey is worth it because I think there's times in the journey you question it and you question yourself and you question if what's possible and you question how hard that journey can be and actually just just being reassured that it is it is worth it whatever that journey takes you to and it might be a different place than you expected mm. that journey is 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 absolutely worth it and it's worth it's worth risking the heartbreak and it's worth yeah. worth risking a disappointment because you always you know I, I I'm lucky it's always sort of I feel it's always in some way worked out and but even the real bits of the journey that were heartbreaking to me once you're through them and past them you realize that it has made you better and it has made you stronger and you learn all the time so I guess it's that you know the journey is worth it and every day you will learn something and just be smart to that be wise to that I love it wonderful uh, it's so uh, it's so amazing to listen to the passion that you have for that journey for the experience for the for the responsibility that you've had to, to, to do what you've done um, I remember I remember measuring you, your laboratory test back in 98 and just thinking holy moly <laughs> what a phenomenal athlete we found here but not not realizing at the time what a phenomenal person you are um what a role model you are thank you so much Catherine. well thank you for being part of the journey too steve so there you go folks what an amazing person Catherine granger is a powerful interview i'm sure you'll agree you can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and subscribe through the website. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please leave a review on iTunes.